the incomparable. Number 354, May 2017. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell. This is a special bonus episode of The Incomparable with something that's only been done once before. Only a single guest. It's Dan Moore, and he just said, wow. Hi, Dan. Hi, Jason. Who was the other single guest? Well, when we did the um, Miyazaki overview episode, only John Syracuse and I were on it because nobody else wanted to be on it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's like this show. Nobody else wanted to be on this episode either. We've come a long way. So people asked me if we were going to cover the fact we've been talking, you've been mentioning it on various podcasts that you that you write, write novels and you've been working on novels and you're hoping to have a novel published. And the plan here is that this episode will go out on the day that your first novel is published officially, although I already received my copy in the mail, <laughs> as have many people, the printed edition, the ebook will come out then it'll be available should be on shelves and bookstores, all of these things should happen. And everybody asks, like, well, are you going to do an incomparable episode and talk about it? It's like, well, I don't think we should do a regular incomparable episode about the work of somebody who is one of our panelists, because there's only a couple ways that can go. <laughs> yeah, uh, one of them could be very, very bad. <laughs> right, and the other would be super boring, because yeah, it'll yeah. just be nice things about our friend and their book, and that's also not good. So I decided that maybe what we would do for this episode, this bonus episode, is for you and me to talk about um, about your your book and the process of writing your book and the 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 story of of you putting this thing together because I think people will be interested in that people who've been listening to this podcast for a long time have been hearing your voice you are are, are the most uh, frequent panelist on the incomparable I'm so, trying to hold that up I mean I'm, there are, there are people nipping at my heels these days. Yeah, well, David Lohr is on every episode of everything. He says yes. I have to just tell him no sometimes because he will always <laughs> say yes. Um, so, but yeah, so I thought that would be a way that we could do it is we could talk about the book and what's in it and how you, uh, without, you know, spoiling it for people. Yeah, yeah, we'll avoid and, spoilers. Yeah, maybe we'll do a little spoiler horn at the end. I don't know. But, uh, and about the process because I think the process is interesting too. As I have I've tweeted about before, I have an email here from June 2010 <laughs> so almost seven years ago, that uh, is you sending along or offering to send along an ebook of your beta stage of your novel. It's all the mm. plot lines are firing smoothly. I've ironed out most of the more <laughs> incidental problems, but still a work in progress. Danger may abound. That seems an accurate description of the first draft of many novels. <laughs> so let's back up from 2010. Um, and, and start with first, let's start with where, when did you write your first, what you'd consider a, your first novel to have, you have written and, and tell, tell us how long it was from there to the thing that became the Caledonian Gambit. Well, the very first thing I'm sort of looking back to see what I can actually find here, um, in terms of my early early uh, attempts at writing things. But I think the very first thing I finished, um, and, and I've been trying to write novels for years. Um, I remember, like, I got a little better at it as it went along. And I, I wrote some short stories here and there, but never anything that I, like, really... I, I always wanted to write novels. I wanted to write long stories because that's what I liked reading. And I wanted the ability to be able to have 
all those things you can't do easily in a short story, like little digressions and like world, like, you know, you can do some of these things, short stories, but you have to be very economical about it. And I'm maybe not an economical person when it comes to writing. Uh, and so creating a short story, which is a very finely crafted, like instrument, uh, in which everything is done with a purpose and everything has, you know, is very like, carefully calculated it just it wasn't a medium that ever spoke to me uh, i i admire those who can who can craft it and wield it well because it's not an easy thing to do um, but i always really wanted to write longer stories and so uh, over the years i've tried this in a number of you know different attempts and i think the furthest i got for a long time was when i lived uh, abroad for a while in my junior year of college i think i got like maybe like 20, 10, 20,000 words into a story before realizing like, I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, I didn't know where the plot was going. I was just sort of putting one word after another. And, and sometimes that works. But in this case, I felt like uh, realizing all the pacing was off and the story wasn't, you know, quite firing correctly. So uh, I ditched that. But that was an idea that I had been working on uh, since probably like after the, my freshman year of college. And so after a couple of years after I graduated college, I was working as a web developer and an IT guy, uh, and I got kind of sick of that job. And I thought, you know, I've always wanted to actually sit down and finish a novel. And so I started working again on that idea, and I, I started from scratch. Uh, and I worked on it in, like, my spare time, uh, you know, around my job at nights, weekends, etc. And my favorite story about that novel is that I finished that novel. I like I got to a point where I want to say it was maybe August of 2004 or so. Um, and I, I sort of was like, I, I had gotten close enough. I knew where the end was, you know, and I was very close to it. And I remember that one day I realized, you know, okay, I'm, this is the, this is the last chapter. Like I, I know where I am and I can finish this in like another couple thousand words and I was at work, it was a Friday, and it was the middle of the summer in August, and there was nothing going on. So I sort of looked around and realized, nobody is paying any attention to me. Nobody's in the office, a lot of people on vacation. So I fired up my word processor, and I like, I know exactly what I need to write. And I like banged out the last couple thousand words of that novel while sitting at my desk. Wow. And that was the first thing I ever finished. And like, I remember sitting back and just like looking at it going like, oh my god, I, I actually did it. I actually finished a novel. And, and that was mind blowing to me at, at 24, uh, this thing that I had been, you know, thinking my entire life, I had something I wanted to do, but I, I wasn't sure I would ever actually be able to do it. So what, what, uh, what novel was that? Is that something I've read or was that something yeah, that you just shook your head about? Indeed something that you read, uh, is that the driver? Called, that is the driver series. Uh -huh. Um, and I think I've got a copy here, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> unfortunately. I, I'm not, not, not going to read it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to find if I have, like, unfortunately, it was all written in, like, Apple Works or something. So some of these formats may be a little, uh, a little past their prime. Um, yeah, so this was a post-apocalyptic series, uh, which involved a, the main character was a driver. He had a car, essentially. Uh, and there were two main characters. One was this this driver named Nathan, and the other one was a young woman named Ellen. And it was sort of 
you know, everything everything goes back to Star Wars with me, Jason. <laughs> this was kind of an attempt oh, yeah. to do a post a post apocalyptic novel that was very much the hero's journey and absolutely into some of my love of Star Wars. It was I and, that's that's my memory of it because I did read it, and that is my memory of it is that it was very it was very hero's journey, very Star Wars, except set in this kind of earthbound post apocalyptic setting, but very yeah, Star Wars, yeah. right down to you know, kind of wizards and dark forces and things like that. Of a sort. Yeah, and I and there were things I ne- so it was envisioned as a trilogy, as as all fantasy stories are Indeed. legally obligated to be. Uh, and I ended up I finished that one, and around the time I finished that up, or shortly thereafter, was when I decided to leave my computer job. And um, I did that by going, I uh, I quit and I went to Ireland for a month, actually with our, uh, my friend Tony Sindelar, yeah. um, who was an incomparable panelist. He and I traveled around for a little bit. Uh, with another friend of ours. And during that time, I started jotting down notes for the second book in that series. Um, I will note that, you know, not to, not to discourage anybody, but in general, if you're like thinking from an actual practical, like business point of view, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> because if you start in on a second book and the first book never sells, then you've basically written a book that is not going to be saleable in yeah. its own, right? Because you've written the middle of a story. Unless you're very, very lucky. You're and, very lucky. And you're like Lois McMaster Bushold did that, right? Yeah, where, right, where right. she wrote what ended up being um the the two uh, cordelia's honor is the is the 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 omnibus version but she ended up writing one of those and putting it aside and then writing another book in the universe but it wasn't a direct continuation right right and that this would be sold. like if yeah this would be like if if you know george lucas had made empire strikes back like i mean which is a great movie but like trying to sell that without having star wars you know before it seems tough yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was good for me. I'm glad that I did it because I learned a lot. I felt like in that series, every, like I just kept getting better. It was about honing my craft. Mm-hmm. I felt like it really helped me improve. And it was, it was doing it, which is the most important thing, right? It was not like sitting around thinking about how to, you know, oh man, I wonder if I could write a novel. No, it was actually sitting down and putting words on a page. Yep. And, you know, in some ways there's, you never lose out if you're, if you're putting words on the page, even if those words don't end up, you know, turning into something, at least you've, you've done it. It's like, you know, you've gone to the gym, essentially. You've, you've exercised yep. your creative skills. So, and, it, and it's true. Did you do NaNoWriMo? I did uh, several times, uh, four or five times, I think, that I actually finished it. Maybe more. I don't remember. Um, I worked on a couple different projects. None of these were directly connected to this, mm-hmm. I want to say. I have like 50,000 words of like a YA sci-fi novel somewhere that I worked on. I have a 100,000 word like sort of like literary, quote unquote, literary novel that I wrote, which was like wow. a semi-autobiographical thing that I wrote, which I basically I did two years of that. So yeah. I did the first half in one year and the second all, half in another all of my All of my NaNoWriMo is like that. I, I was just looking it up actually while we were talking because I wanted to figure out what, what the three, because I've written three novel length manuscripts and uh, I wrote them all in blocks over two NaNoWriMo years. And so that, because my answer to the question of when when did I first finish a, a novel manuscript was was um, almost 10 years ago. It was November 2007 because mm-hmm. I did NaNoWriMo in 2006 and then finished that novel. I actually wrote it during the year too and then finished the novel in, in November 2007 because that manuscript's like 150,000 words long. And yeah. um, and so it's two fifty thousand word blocks. And then I did like in February, I did my own little NaNoWriMo. But, you know, a long time now. And then, and then I've got two others in a drawer. But it goes to your point about uh, going to the gym that... Um, 
NaNoWriMo, and full disclosure, I'm on the board of NaNoWriMo. It's a nonprofit that runs the event and I, because I believe in it. But one of the things I really believe about it is uh, you can see that uh, the more you do it, the more the rust falls off and the more it doesn't become easy, yeah. but you yeah. it becomes you become more capable of doing it. And it's it's no wonder that when you talk to a lot of writers, not all writers, but a lot of productive novelists like Stephen King, the number that they say in terms of word count that they basically do in a day is not that far off from the NaNoWriMo word count. It's right. basically yeah. the, if you were a novelist, you would write you know, 1,500 words a day and you would be productive. And the truth is that doesn't sound like a lot to me because I can write a, I can peck out a Macworld column at 1,200. I did one that was 1,400 words the other day in a few hours. But novel writing is harder than writing a column, I find, because you've got to mm-hmm. keep your plot in your head and your characters and there's a lot more going on there. But the the my point is, if you keep up that pace every day for a month, you've got 50,000 words. If you did it every day for two months, you've basically got a normal-sized novel. And you can imagine that, although it's not realistic, even if you're Stephen King, that means that if you wrote every day for a few hours, you know, in in the span, it's not like for 12 or 15 hours, but like maybe for eight hours or six hours, you could potentially write like six novels in in a year. Now, you wouldn't because you'd want to revise and other things, but it's like, it's all, once you start to take the... You know, the first step in the in the journey, right? The first uh, step in the marathon, mm-hmm. you got to take the first step and then you take the next step. And it's a right. process that leads to the end. Yeah, you can't. I mean, no one's sitting down and writing a novel in a day, probably. Maybe someone's done that, but it's, it's a very bad not, novel. It's probably not great. You no. Know? So, you know, it, it is a that is, I think, the thing that's daunting about it, right? It's a commitment. You know, just like training yeah. for a 5K or something, right? I, I always like, like it to a marathon or a 5 or 10K or uh, some other kind of personal achievement kind of thing, climbing a mountain. It's it's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. A marathon's probably closer because, like, there are people who can go out and run a 5K without work, you know, without prepping themselves, no sweat. Uh, but a marathon is a Everybody lot has to, to train for a marathon. Yeah, even even fantastic marathon runners. Um, yeah, so it's, it's a gradual process. And, you know, between NaNoWriMo and writing some other stuff on the side, um, you know, I once asked, uh, I was at a book signing for Neil Stevenson and asked, you know, for his advice and his advice to me was, and I think he's, I've, he may have said this elsewhere too, was write 10,000 pages and throw them out. Uh, and I feel like I got pretty close. I don't know if I wrote 10,000 pages and throw them out, but I wrote a lot of pages that are, you know, never going to see the light of day basically. Yeah. Um, and, and so along those lines, you know, I, I worked on the sequel to that, um, to that post-apocalyptic book. I started in on the third book and never finished it as you know because you read the first two yeah uh and i know how it ends but i just like there's no point to writing it because yeah. i so the the story One of these about days you'll have to tell me how it ends <laughs> i'll tell you how it ends yeah, george r. R. martin tell me how it ends george r. R. Martin. it's in my head um but one of the funny things about that which i dug out around the time that i got my agent was i submitted that to my current now current agent and he turned it down uh, I submitted to a few places and did not get, you know, nobody, nobody wanted to take me on as a client on the basis of that right. manuscript. Um, and probably rightly so, because, you know, I wrote it when I was 24. I'd never written a novel before. I didn't really know what I was doing. And it's not to say that that thing could not be turned into a workable novel, but it was going to, you know, it's like a house that needs to be taken down to the studs. Yeah, you probably like, just, it just needs to be ripped down. You probably start over. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, I, I've mentioned to you recently. I like. I, I think there are some some cool ideas in there that I might steal for for future stories. So right. 
That's why I won't I won't self-publish them probably because I feel like there's still utility in them. And also self-publishing stuff that you wrote when you're 24, I feel like doesn't really help your your brand, no. as it were. <laughs> no, if you if you end up on a roll where they're publishing your novels, that's the time you dust that off. And again, you probably strip it for parts rather oh, yeah, than yeah, yeah, yeah. anything else. So uh how long ago did the uh did the idea for what became Caledonian Gambit pop into your head? And then what what was the journey from there to actually having a finished manuscript to email me about? I was thinking about this and I, I went back and fortunately I'm a digital pack rat, so I keep everything. So I was looking through my sort of uh, old writing folder and I have a, a document called Eli.CWK, which is an Apple Works document. And it is dated May 20th. Hey, that's tomorrow, 2002. <laughs> So 15 years 15 ago, years tomorrow, ago. tomorrow, tomorrow, <laughs> as we record this, but yeah, 15 um, roughly, years ago, yeah. 15 years ago, almost to the day of your publication date. And, and I think that was probably the first attempt to write a story. I had notes and I recently, um, when I, at some point dug up my, uh, or cleaned a lot of stuff out of my parents' attic, I found a bunch of my notes from college and I found the notebook in which I remembered I had written, started jotting down the ideas for this story, which was probably also 2002 or so, about um, second semester or senior year, I think. And that was because I had just been given the Vorkosigan novels by Louis McMaster Bujold by my cousins, and I was so enamored with them that I wanted to write a space opera that was similar to to those in the idea yeah. of, like, sprawling universe, all these, you know, different factions, political intrigue, characters that grow and change throughout the course of a series. Like, I was, I, I fell in love with those books and I wanted, you know, as we all do, when we find something we really love and it's not like we run out of it because we consume all of it. We're like, well, there's no there's no more. What, what if I could make more but like do my own thing? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I started that's when I started jotting down notes and stuff changed. Obviously, um, you know, the, the 15 years is a long road for a story. Most things probably don't don't live that long as an idea. And this one I picked up and put down a bunch. And I think the current version of it um really dates back to probably 2008 or 9 um so i sent you in what 2010 we decided yep yeah so 2008 or 9 um at which point i was already working for macworld um i don't know i you know some of this i can't really remember at this point honestly it's been so long but i you know i was again i was probably working on the side on like nights and weekends uh, I don't think I did. I like used NaNoWriMo as an excuse for this one. I was actually looking at my NaNoWriMo dashboard when you mentioned it and realized none of my stuff's in there. I think they changed sites and they, they erased they, everything. They, they wiped it out. I only had one in there for my last one of 2011 and the rest weren't in there. So I couldn't find so, it. Sadly, I don't. I have no idea. Uh, the record is gone. Um, but yeah, I've done. Um, you know, I, I think NaNoWriMo is great as we were just talking about for getting you started. And once you feel like, hey, I am pretty confident in what I'm doing. You realize you don't you don't need that as a, a cr- I don't want to say crutch. That's not too it's a little pejorative, but like you can you don't need the training wheels anymore. You yeah, can, like hey, I know how to bike. I can do this. You and can, I can do this all the time. You can internalize. I don't need to wait that. till November, right? Exactly. Like, um, and so for me, uh, I got very comfortable in writing all the time, and especially my day job at MacWorld involved writing a lot. Uh, and so I was very comfortable with it as like a process. And so I figured, you know, I want to start back in and I got, I think I was working on the third book in that driver series and I was like, oh man, I'm just totally jammed up on this. And like, I don't really know what to, what to do. And the first book didn't do, you know, didn't get any bites. 
And why am I working on the third book of a trilogy if I can't sell the first book? Um, and so I think, it, you know, at a certain point, I, I sort of had to swallow my pride and be like, that's not going anywhere. Let's work on something totally different. Uh, and so I wrote, I think what I wrote was probably the first thing I wrote was probably the um, it might have been the prologue for this book. Or ironically, it might have been a version of the first chapter of the second book, hmm. which we'll get to. <laughs> well, um, yes, indeed, yeah. we will get to it. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, 2008, 2009 was probably the first, like when I started in working on what eventually become, became the Caledonian Gambit. And of course it, it changed a lot in that period as even you saw in the time that, you know, that you read it. Yeah. Uh, it, it definitely did. Um, the, the, so 2010, you sent it to me and I read it. I remember reading it, um, every year for a few years there, um, when the kids were little, we would go to this family camp up in the woods and the Sierras and, um, I remember very distinctly sitting, uh, reading, I think on, I think not on a Kindle. It might have been like on an iPhone. Yeah. Um, or actually it could have been an iPad even, right? 2010, right? Maybe it was the original iPad in iBooks. I think that's what I did and, and not a Kindle because the Kindle, um, that I had at that point had the, you know, the stupid keyboard. It's not good anyway, but I, uh, so the device isn't clear, but I know it was a digital device and I was sitting there reading it like in a, in a, uh, a lounge chair kind of thing. One of those like director's chairs on dirt surrounded by trees in the national forest in front of our tent cabin, probably drinking a beer and mm-hmm. reading and noting uh, the book. And I have a fond, a fond, clear memory of reading and, no- <laughs> and and writing notes about the book. Now, you know, keeping in mind that my, uh, my kids were way, I mean, it's been seven years, right? The kids have changed a lot more than you oh, and yeah. I have in the last seven years. Um, the, uh, and it, it was, it was, it definitely hit me at the time that, Knowing your love for the Vorkosigan series and having read all of those in a very short period of time because of your recommendations, certainly I was reminded of uh, of that kind of style of thing. This this is actually two months before the incomparable, by the way. Yeah, right, right. This predates it. So, I, incidentally, I just found a. Uh, thank God, I used to keep a blog somewhere. Uh, I found a blog suggesting that I started it in March two thousand nine. So right. that was Makes about a, only about a year and a, a year and change before I sent it to you. Yeah. Then, so, so you wrote wrote it across two thousand nine, basically in the beginning of two thousand ten. Yeah. That first draft of it. So yeah. um, I remember reading it. I remember. Um, I remember my notes of it a little bit, <laughs> mostly that my complaint was that your main character seemed like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I, I'm not sure how much I fixed that, but I hope at oh, least no, a little I bit. Don't, I don't feel that way anymore because I read, I read another draft of it much later. And um, no, I mean, that, it was just funny. That was, that, I remember that being one of my main things. I mean, I found a, a bunch of little things, I think, about like, oh, what about this? And this seems inconsistent and all of that. But uh, what, my, my overarching thing, I think, was that I had some confusion about the two uh, viewpoints because there are sort of two viewpoint characters mm-hmm. in, the, in the book. And my frustration that your main character seemed to be a little bit passive and got a little bit taken advantage of by other characters to the point like I wanted to see him sort of like have more struggle or yeah. or or feel you know 
figure things out a little bit push back a little yeah Yeah. because he just seemed like he was getting because i mean the story in broad strokes without spoiling it you you end up with this your main character kind of has a homecoming that's kind of a reluctant homecoming and it we as we learn more about his family life and his life back where he grew up you can see that there's some very strong personalities and you can see why he he uh, left (laughs) honestly you see why he left And I think the challenge in the first draft that I had was that when he returns back, it feels like he's just going back to being ping-ponged around by these right. other people in his life. And I think I think in the final version, that isn't there. That that you see why he left and, and why there are all these issues. But you also see that he's his own person and he's making his own decisions and he's uh, he's not kind of like... There occasionally he's hapless because he's learning about this new kind of world that's opened up to him, but he's yeah. never dumb about it. Like he, the decisions he makes or the the things he gets steered into, uh, I don't feel like he's doing it because he's been cowed uh, or because he's clueless. And that that was a for me that was like one of the key points is I want to root for this guy, but every time he does something, I was thinking, you idiot, why are you doing that? And I think that <laughs> and that's a subtle thing, but I think you managed to navigate that a little bit in making him seem a little bit well, um, you know more capable and and like when he get when he does something that is dumb he does it for reasons right it, it's not it right, may turn right. out to be a regrettable later but he does it for good reasons well the thing and it's the thing we often complain about you know when we critique television shows for example or other things where people do things that you think are dumb and the and the, we always like why did you do that and then the answer is like because that's what the script told them to do right yeah. you don't want you don't want to ever feel like your your character is doing something because the plot demands that they do this thing, even though it makes no sense, right? Like, even if they're going to do something dumb or make a mistake, which characters have to do because they're flawed, and that's what makes stories interesting is conflict and mistakes, and and that's our jazz. You want to make it, make it seem like there was a reason, there was a rationale, even if it was a bad rationale. Mm-hmm there was a reason that they did what they did. Yeah, right. Like this character is put under pressure in a certain way, psychological pressure, physical pressure, and they react. And as long as it makes sense, um, because, because I mean, also a subtle thing, right, is you don't want, you want people to like your protagonist. Right, yeah. And not feel unless, like... Unless you're writing a, a, like a, a protagonist well, that's who's deliberately unlikable. Well, you want to, yeah. you, you want to understand why they do what they do yes. and, and be, and identify them in some, with them in some way. And, right. and if, if, if you're like, come on, dummy, why did you do that? That's not, it takes you out of the story. So that, I, I remember that. And, and definitely that was, that was a change that, that made, uh, I, I don't know what else you want to talk about, about the changes that you made along the way because i know that there was a different you know you kind of backed up the opening of the book at one point and then you kind of the final the final book opens very much like the the draft i read was you kind of like went there and then went away from it it went through some changes and so a lot of these came as a result of um getting uh, working with the man who is now my agent so um, let's let's and let's let's talk about that yeah let's talk about that for a moment so you did ultimately get an agent what was that process what happened with that so for several years, I was going to, well, I guess I only went like once when I was younger, uh, in like my mid twenties, I went to BossCon, which is a local science fiction con. And at the time I went, which I think was 2006, uh, it was in downtown Boston. It's since moved to the, over near the convention center. Um, but it, uh, you know, it was just a chance to like go and, and see some interesting writers. George R. R. Martin was there. Cory Doctorow was there. I mean, people that, you know, I knew and admired. I also thought, hey, I've written a book at this point. Like, maybe this is an interesting way to, like, network a little bit. Uh, and so I went to try and do that, and I had an interesting experience and, and really, like, felt like I came away, 
opened up to a new sort of slice of fandom, right? Like cons, I not I'd been to other like uh, I've been to some anime conventions, some video game conventions, stuff like that. I've been to MacWorld, like, but there was not. Uh, I had never really been to a science fiction con. And so that was an interesting experience. Several years later, I, I sort of stopped going for a while. And then several years later, I went back. Uh, and around 2000, um, geez, 2012, probably. Um, I, so I had gone to uh, BossCon in February or so. And I was looking at panels. And I saw a panel by a guy named Mike Cole, who's a writer. And I had read a blog post by him. Uh, only a month or so earlier, maybe linked to by John Scalzi or something, um, talking about just how hard it was to make a living as a full-time writer, which Mike was trying to do at that point. And he was, Mike was very open about like how his books were doing, the kind of money he was making, you know, the fact that he wants to live in, in, you know, New York City and how like making, you know, even with books that did pretty well, um, it was still a really, really uphill climb. Uh, and I thought it was fascinating. And it was also just, um, you know, it was not a rosy picture, but it was a picture that said, like, you can do this. It's just going to be really hard. Um, and so I went and saw Mike on a panel. And later on, a lot of these cons do these things called Kathy clutches where you just sort of sit down at a table yeah. with someone. And so I signed up for Mike's and I sat down and we ended up chatting. And, and Mike, again, very generous with his time was like, hey, you know, as soon as we sat down, he's like, I'm sure a lot of you want to be writers and are trying to figure out how to break into the business. So if you've got questions, Ask me. I will answer him. I will tell you anything. And so we had a very interesting discussion, this whole coffee table. And, and when we were done, I was talking to Mike a little bit and he said like, yeah, you seem like a, like a nice guy. Like you seem very like approachable, very personable. Like you can talk to people like, um, and you, you know, we talked a little bit about like my book and stuff. And then his agent, um, was a man named Joshua Bilmas walked up and, uh, Joshua reps, um, some pretty well-known people, including Charlene Harris, who wrote the stuff that true blood is based on. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Brandon, Brandon Sanderson, Sanderson who's yeah. a very, very well-known fancy author. And Joshua and I started talking and I mentioned, it was very helpful at that point to mention, I, I'm a full-time writer. I'm a professional writer. I write for a technology magazine. Um, and we ended up chatting for a while and discovered that like he, he was very interested in like picking my brain about technology stuff too. Um, and we had some common interests. We both avid crossword doers. Uh, and so we talked for a while. And at the end I said, Hey, you know, I've got this book. I would love to send it to you. Can I do that? And he said, sure. And he gave me his card and I, I sent it off and he eventually read it and sent me back a whole bunch of comments hmm. um and his comments were sort of like i've got my i'm looking at the email now because i'm super curious to see what he said at the time um it's like well it was it was really nice to meet you i didn't really get into the book um and then he talked about sort of like you know he, he thought there was promise in it and he thought like i could put some sentences together there was just some stuff that needs to be worked on. There was stuff that needed to be cut. There was dead weight. There was, you know, stuff that was just kind of overwrought and mm-hmm. sort of killed his interest in it. And he said like, well, you know what, this, this is some problems here, but there's, you know, I looked at some of the other stuff and it seems like there's some promise. So, you know, work on it. I'd be interested to take another look at some point. Now that's huge. I don't know, you know, to talk to our audience for a second. If you've ever tried to write into an agent and submit a manuscript, most of the time, the best you can hope for is like a pretty, you know, form response that's just like, sorry, this wasn't for me. And I've gotten my fair share of those both on editorial submissions as well as on agents, you know, agent queries. And, you know, that's kind of disheartening, right? Like 
you know, even if it's just it's not for me, it makes you feel it's rejection, right? It's it's a bummer. Um, but to get something back that was, you know, if not an acceptance, at least a I read this. Here are a bunch, and I'm looking at this email. It's fairly long. It's like a page long. Um, and so, you know, with specific notes about things to look at. And the fact that someone who is as busy as he is took the time to read through and give me specific pointers was incredibly generous and like incredibly, you know, uh, he was willing to commit his time to do that. And that is huge because it gave me something to say, like, I, all right. Yeah. There's work that needs to be done here. I can go back and I can keep working on this. And he might be willing to look at another draft. Well, and somebody who knows uh, about novels and how they work. Right. And, 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 you know, he's viewing also a slightly different perspective, which is he's viewing from the perspective not just of somebody in the business and not somebody who doesn't have any reason to tell you that they right. like your book. But also he's thinking not just of a novel he likes. He's thinking of novels that he knows that have sold. Right. right. And he's he's also yeah, he's also looking at, you know, sometimes it's about the book, but a lot of times it's usually about the writer, um, which is to say if an agent looks at a book and thinks this book, you know, it's not for me, but it's you know, there's clearly something this person right. this person is promising doing there's promise, right? yeah. like, yeah, you you sometimes they will talk to you and work with you and, you know, like maybe say like not this, but like when you've got something else, let me know. Um, and so because they're looking, you know, a good agent is looking for someone who's going to have a career, right? right? Like they don't want to sell a book. They want to sell a lot of books, like, and they want you to have a long career in which you're going to sell a bunch of books because that's how they make their money, right? Like they make a commission on selling stuff. Right. So they, it's in their best interest for you to have a long and fruitful writing career. In fact, it seems to me that, that, uh, the business model of many agents, including yours is you place a bunch of bets, and mm-hmm. absolutely, and some of them will hit, and you get your Brandon Sanderson, and some of them won't, and they'll they'll write they'll be okay, or they'll write a couple of books, and they won't really go anywhere. But you place the bets, you find people that you want to place a bet on, and then see what happens. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot like it's a lot like a lot of the entertainment industry. Like, think about movies, right? Studios put out a bunch of movies a year, and they have those tent poles where it's like this is our like big blockbuster, our summer blockbuster. It's going to make a ton of money. And we're going to use that to essentially fund a lot of our other movies yeah. that are maybe not going to make as much money. Uh, and so, you know, if you have a huge client who does really well, that enables you to take chances on new people. And yeah, like you said, that might pay off. You might find the next Brandon Sanderson. You might find the next George R. R. Martin. And right? That's how you do like, it. No, that's how you do it. Is yeah, you find exactly. try to find talent and and identify it. And and so he gave you he gave you feedback that let you go away. And I mean, I. I did something similar because I paid um, Saladin Ahmed for a for a, a critique of my most recent manuscript, and similarly, it was like it was a lot about this is too much. You got too much detail here. This is a waste. You need to delete this. You need to change this. And it was great because again, same thing, right? He has no reason to do anything except give me the truth, and that's what I wanted um, from somebody who's written an, a, an award winning novel and has taught creative writing. And it's like it's super valuable to get that perspective. So you take it away, and then. Then you spend how much time working on the book after that? A couple years. Yeah, uh, because we so we stayed in touch, which was great because he would send me emails every once in a while, like often not about book stuff at all. He would send me emails about Matt, like Apple stuff, <laughs> like because he'd see you know me writing about uh, you know whatever announcements came out, and he would just shoot me these little emails about like, oh, what do you think about this thing? Uh, or we'd talk about like crosswords or stuff. So like we ended up kind of becoming friends, which was nice. Uh, and then every once in a while, I would have a new draft, and I would send it over to him. But I think I, you know it was basically back and forth until. 
I want to say it was 2015. So it was only a couple of years ago at this point um, that I had gone back and forth with him and um, one of his, the other agents at the agency, uh, Sam Morgan, who has since left the agency and is off doing his own literary agenting stuff elsewhere. Um, and Sam and Joshua both gave me a bunch of great, like, you know, feedback as I went through the drafts. But it was, it was a couple of years uh, until I think it was summer 2015. Um, that I finally got the call, like, you know what, we, we read this last draft. There's a couple minor things we want to tweak, but we think on the basis of this, it's good enough that we'd, we'd love to have you as a client. Um, and that was, that was probably like, you know, there's a lot of moments where you get to like, feel like take the win, right? Like celebrate. And I think that was for me, that was really the first one where it was like, I have not only did I get that, that call to say, you know, we want to bring you on and we're going to try to sell this, but you know, it was a testament to the fact that I worked my butt off for like two years, you know, making all these changes and revising. And to it was a it was proof to me that I could not only sit down and write a novel as I did, like finishing that first one, but that I could actually then do the hard work because writing, you know, putting one word in front of the other seems hard, but really it's, it's figuring out what order to put them in as I will say. <laughs> like, um, and so the, the amount of time you spent like writing that first novel, you know, rewriting it is going to be more probably. And it's harder. It it's feels harder. It's because way harder. It's like playing Jenga, right? Like, it's like, Oh my God, if I take this brick out right here with this whole thing fell, fall over. And I think I tried to talk a little bit about this in a talk I did once at a singleton, the conference in Montreal, but like, it's, it's trying to get yourself out of that mindset that like, Oh, my, my story is this delicate spider web. And if I break this one strand, the whole thing will fall apart and trying to get yourself more into the mindset of my story is like a, like a piece of iron that is being worked in a forge, right? Where you're, you're hammering on it to make it like temperate, to make it stronger uh, than the thing that was, or, you know, originally, right? Like you take a sword and it's all about folding the metal and like hammering it and trying to reinforce it to the point where it's like, it's not going to break immediately. And you can hammer on something pretty hard um, and, and try to sort of work it into the right shape. And, and that's, that's what you're going for when you're rewriting. Uh, and otherwise, like you just sort of get paralyzed with fear that anything that you change will break everything. Yeah. And it's not the case. Stories are pretty resilient in that way. And you can always fix it is the good news. You got to be bold. You got to. And, yeah, and that's the goes to your kill your darlings thing, too, which you yeah. got to be bold and not be afraid that you're going to roll over something that may be something you're really proud of, and, but it, it doesn't fit. And so you just got to be yep. just passionate about like, yep, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. Kill. I mean, and sometimes there are things that you should fight for that are good and you know they're good and you got to trust your gut and say like, no, this is good. I need to find a way to make this work. Um, but yeah, you can't get hung up on that one thing that is preventing everything else from working, right? Like if it's, if it's one thing preventing the rest of the story from working, that's got to go. But if it's one thing that's like, oh, it just doesn't quite fit, then, you know, figure out a way to f make it fit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but two years, yeah. So two years until I got the, um, uh, the deal for that. I think actually, you know what? That must have been right before. That was right before we were all at Sasquatch. Yeah. Together. yeah. 2015, yeah. right? Because I, I met, I met your agents in yes, 2015 right. at Sasquatch. And, yep. and, and Josh said to me, um, what do you have in nonfiction? I'm like, all I got is sci-fi sci novels. <laughs> I don't have any yeah. nonfiction for you. It's like, I'm really excited about little, about like a nonfiction narrative. I'm like, oh man. I can't. Yep. I I, I keep thinking it's about fine. it. I'm like I don't. Fine. I don't have anything for that. But he's a he's a character. It was fun meeting those guys. And yeah, so you got to go there and at least be rep by an agent, right? Yep. And you know. and uh, but the process wasn't over because you had to make changes and things like that. And then they had to go through the process of trying to sell your book. 
Yeah, and that's another whole long. Once you, yeah, it's always like one. It's like a video game level. You beat that level, and the next, next level is just harder, right? <laughs> yeah. And so you know that basically involves sending out. You know, they they craft a query letter, which is basically kind of a lot, a lot like the thing that you send to an agent, right? When you're when you're trying to pitch your book to them, um, and but obviously they have a little more experience at doing this, and they have relationships with editors, which is great. And so we spent some time working on a query letter for the story. You know, a little plot synopsis, uh, describing it, talking about me a little bit. And then sending that out to a bunch of editors. Uh, and then you get the long period of waiting for the editors to get back. And this is basically very similar to like sending stuff out to agents, which is to say most editors are going to turn you down. Um, could be for a variety of reasons. They might, again, maybe it's just not a story that resonates with them. Um, maybe it just doesn't fit in with like their their what they're working on or their marketing or their style or tone, uh, any variety of things. Maybe they don't have money for it. Who knows? Um, and so we went through um, a lot, maybe somewhere between 10 and 15 um, different publishers before we found the uh, the deal that we wanted. And I should mention, actually, as an interesting part of this, which is something I forget sometimes, um, probably in between me finishing the first draft of this and actually um getting signed by an agent i at one point submitted this to um uh, there's a small publisher called angry robot Uh and they had a every once in a while they hold open submissions and i sent my book in for that and it got to the point of they requested the whole manuscript um and and they did not eventually like you know offer to buy it but they you know it got pretty far in that process and then some books came out i think um I think Wes Chu's uh, Lives of Tao came out of that. Um, So, you know, like, their books, real books came out of that. Um, So I I felt, like, heartened by that, that even though they didn't want to buy it, like, it had, you know, again, passed a certain sniff test. Um, So that was exciting. And, in fact, we submitted to them, um, you know, when we were doing the uh, the submissions to editorial. They still didn't buy it, but, hey, that's fine. Uh, I read this already. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, Some of them, actually, I feel like maybe some of them did remember it. I don't know. I felt like it got better in that time, but eh, uh, you know, not to get too much down the weeds of the editorial process, but you get a lot of comments back. I got some very nice comments by people who were like, oh man, I really, there's things I really like about this, but ultimately I just, it didn't work for me in some way or, you know, and like, that's depressing too, because you're like, wait, what didn't work? What didn't work? What can I fix? Um, but you know, you're just looking for the right editor. So what was the process of, of finally, you know, did you get, did you get offers and, and how did you make that, you know, without getting, you know, I know you don't want to, there are things you don't want to disclose, but like, how did that, how'd the deal get made? Um, there, we ended up getting two offers, um, both of which were, um, had their virtues, uh, and we ended up going with the author from, um, Talos Press, which is a imprint of Skyhorse. Um, and if just, you know, some of that was, was purely like a business decision in terms of like, you know, what they, what the terms of the offer were. Um, and so, you know, I ended up, I'm working with a editor there named Jason Katzman and, um, he seemed excited about the book, which was great. And the terms were, were ones that were, you know, (laughs) amenable to all parties. So we signed that deal and, uh, at that point, then that's, that's another good example of, uh, you could, you sign that deal and you're like, great, I've signed a deal for a book. When's my book come out? And I signed that deal like over a year ago, you know? And so, um, so next tip is, you know, if you get to that point and you sign a book deal, keep working, uh, because otherwise, you know, you're gonna, 
bask on you know bask in the sun for a while about that and then realize wow this this deal this doesn't come out for a year and i'm not gonna i can't just sit around and wait for it to come out i gotta keep working otherwise when it does come out i won't have anything else to like (laughs) push forward so this is where writing becomes like a job because you know you can never quite sit back and relax yeah you had to you had to uh to keep working as it went through the process um i I was gonna you mentioned uh that there's a sequel i did now are you going Mm -hmm. against your own advice there by writing another book in this universe (laughs) when you don't know how well this book is going to do and whether it's going to merit a sequel i am 100 percent going against my own advice um yeah and i had written that actually before i signed with the agency certainly um, because you read that too, and you read that I don't know when, but probably not too long after uh, you read the early versions of the Caledonian Gambit. You probably read that at, probably a couple of years later, because I kind of jumped in on that, and I knew I shouldn't. But at the same time, part of me felt like, well, these books are not. It's not a trilogy. It's not intended to be a like beginning, middle, end of like books. It's they're more episodic, and so I thought to myself, well, you know, I have an idea for a story. And worst case scenario, you know, if the first book doesn't do well, maybe I can rejigger this and make this the first book or sell this first as Lois McMaster Bujold did. Um, and so I kind Fair. of, you know, against my better judgment, went and did that. Um, and that book is still in the works. I don't have too much else to say about it directly. Um, I'm still working on it. It's uh, I'm getting feedback and I'm I'm pretty close to a draft that I think that myself and my agent are both happy with. Um, which is a good process. And then some of that will depend on seeing how well the Caledonian Gambit does. So rest assured that if you've, if you've read it and you like it, uh, there is potentially more to come. But obviously, you know, that depends on how well the book does. So, you know, tell your friends, tell, every, tell everybody, rate it on Amazon, rate it on Goodreads, write reviews, etc. if you like it and you want to see more. So that's how that works. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the book without without spoiling it. So the, it's science fiction. It's you've got a can you can you talk a little about um where this is set because it's got a very particular as these space operas often do. It's got a very <laughs> particular kind of politics setup um that is, you know, it's like geopolitics except instead it's Galactic Space. politics. Galactopolitical, as I call it, which yeah. is kind of a mouthful. Yeah, this is set in... Set. Of, I, I'm working... You know, the timeline is not specified in the first book, but it's a few hundred years in the future. Um, the galaxy has expanded. Uh, there are still... This is kind of notable. There are still only humans in this in this galaxy. Um, it's so, you know, there are no aliens. Um, the worlds that have been settled are mainly connected via wormholes, and there are these gates that sort of prop the wormholes open and let you travel between these solar systems. And over the last 20 years or so, there's been this Cold War going on. Um, and, I mean, it started It started as an actual war. This um, uh, The the Illyrican Empire invaded. Uh, this was a, a group of former Earth colonists, um, and they sort of were ticked off by the way they felt like they had been treated by Earth. And so... They invaded Earth and took over the other colonies, uh, several of the other colonies, including the planet Caldonia, which is obviously in the title and which is where our our protagonist is from. Uh, And then over time, it sort of settled into this Cold War where the um, the remnants, the people who are not uh, conquered by the Illyricans have sort of formed formed this ad hoc commonwealth of independent systems to 
basically resist. And the way that it's sort of shaken out is that they, they end up, you know, kind of in one of these Cold War mutually assured destruction scenarios where uh, they've got these two superpowers and they're kind of staring each other down. But right now, everything is kind of uh, calm before the storm. So there's there's no open warfare, but there are occasionally maybe some skirmishes. And of course, it gives us a great opportunity for spies and covert agents to do all their sneaking around. Right. So it's you, you get the sense that maybe there's a there's a change on the horizon. But for now, a Cold War, uh, there's a balance of power that at least temporarily has been put in place between these two factions of humans who have different collections of planets. Now, Caledonia, you mentioned, one of the concepts, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that is that a lot of these planets, what ends up happening is that there are colonists that, that colonize them that are, um, at least in some cases, largely from particular nations on Earth. And so you end up with kind of, you know, a planet with a, a more homogenous culture than you might otherwise expect. Is that right? Because Caledonia seems to be, has a strong Irish-Scottish kind of uh, flavor to it. Yeah, and in this case, a lot of that comes from the people who were the founders of the colony and therefore were like, kind of had a vested interest in pushing their own uh, cultural agenda. Um, and it's not to say that there aren't people from all, uh, you know, all heritages and backgrounds, but just that that has evolved to become and sort of like with 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 some melange from some other cultures, but it sort of evolved to become the um, the main culture on that planet. Um, and, and yeah, so that's, it's a result sort of of the, I don't want to say the ruling class, but like sort of the people who were in the, the upper echelons, uh, of that, that colony when it got settled. All right. Uh, and so presumably other planets have, do, do, uh, will, are all planets in these, uh, in this universe like that? Or are there, do they vary about whether they're super they culturally tied or not at all? I would say they, they largely vary. There are some with much more. Uh, much stronger cultural identities and then others which are more melting pots. Mm. Um, it really depends on where you go and, you know, sort of who is there first. And then all the ways those cultures just sort of evolve as they go along. But, you know, yeah, in the, we haven't, we haven't spent too much time on other planets. Um, you know, in this first book really focuses largely on Caldonia. Um, and so they have a very, a very, as you said, a very distinct culture, which is very heavily Celtic in origin. And a lot of that just came from, I spent my, a lot of time in Scotland and Ireland at various points. Right. And I enjoyed the culture of it and I wanted to sort of work that into, uh, a story. Yeah. I think I, I, again, try not to give too much away, but also it has a little bit of a flavor of, uh, there, there, at a, a few points I got a flavor of like, you know, kind of IRA kind of, uh, right. Yeah, that there's yeah, some, there's, a, there's a little bit of crime and maybe, maybe there's a little bit of terrorism and it's all just kind of hanging around there, which, which, uh, that, that was the flavor that I got out of. Yeah, out of no, that. absolutely. That's, that's, that was another, certainly another influence. As I said, I went to, I did go to Ireland for a while after uh, finishing that first book and I, I did, uh, get to visit some of the sites that are tied very closely to to Irish history and Irish nationalism, and that definitely influenced uh, my my thinking yeah. on that the evolution of that planet. You go you go to yeah well that's true. I mean I was thinking of Northern Ireland and the IRA, but but you're right. I think uh, you can't set you, you really can't go around a corner in Ireland without running into mm -hmm. some monument for somebody who basically killed a lot of English people. Yep, <laughs> English soldiers who were yeah that's that's. 
uh, that's part of the national identity there is throwing throwing off the the English. So, um, well, what else? What else should people? What else should people know about the setting of this to get them interested in reading this book if they have not yet? What do you think? Um, yeah, I I think what intrigues me about it. I mentioned already that that people are all they're this is all human, and I think that that's a big part of it for me. As uh, you know, I I've read books that I've enjoyed where aliens are done very well, but I have a lot of t- times where I feel like sometimes. Uh, you know, you look at like classic Star Trek and like even Next Generation and people are just like, ah, oh, aliens, you know, they're just like people with funny foreheads. <laughs> and something about that I always found a little off-putting. Uh, and so I really wanted to like delve into that. And so, you know, uh, that's a big part of it. We've also got, um, I think the, the nature of inter-system travel and how that's set up works, uh, towards making this an interesting, uh, universe because these things become strategic, like where you can get, it's kind of like having bridges, right? Like where you can get and what the natural environment prevents you from doing makes a difference in terms of where you can easily like deploy military ships. Where are the lines drawn between these different superpowers? Like how does that play out in terms of getting people back and forth across borders? Like I think that's to me, that was interesting rather than just having a much more open galaxy. Like you might see in something like star Wars or star Trek where it's like, well, you know, like there are some political lines, but like you're, you're faster than light technology or whatever lets you go anywhere you want, essentially. It's just whether or not you should be there. Whereas in this, it's like, well, there's only certain routes to get between certain places. So that becomes a matter of strategic importance. It becomes a matter of military importance. Uh, and it's really, uh, it's, becomes integral to this story too. Yeah. I, I like the I like that it's strategic is the word that I was searching for there too. That with with the Vorkosigan books, with something like uh like Lost Fleet is like that. Um the the new uh Empire series by uh Scalzi uses this conceit of the you know jump gates basically Babylon five. Yeah. There are lots yeah. of examples of this, but it does add that strategic um, geographic thing. It also feels a little bit like Ticket to Ride or something like that, right? It's like yeah, things, right, right. everything is connected sometimes by weird routes, but it means that you can cut somebody off. And if everybody can just go everywhere, it's, uh, it's, th- that's a different kind of galactopolitical situation to use your right, right. mouthful of a, of a phrase. <laughs> so, but it is, I would say, um, having read this book several times in several different forms, that this is, this, if I were to say what this book is, I would say it is a story about human beings who and and their relationships with with each other set inside a thriller about things with galactopolitical consequences. It's like those are the shells for me. It's like at its core, this is about um, not just relationships between people, but especially like familial relationships. And yeah. your main character is dealing with family history and baggage and cultural baggage and a and a planet that he basically fled, a home he fled um, for reasons. And then that's the core. And then just outside of that is there is a there is a spy action thriller kind of plot that has to happen that he's involved with. He gets caught up in. And then outside that is all of the. Uh, the uh, political ramifications on the galaxy spanning scale of what's going on, which is a nice, it's a nice little uh, turducken of, uh, of different story <laughs> things happening there. But people should, yeah. I, I'd say some people I think read uh, space opera books for like 
galactic battles and details of made up uh made up weapons and made up ships and things like that like uh, tell me about this imaginary gun and how it fires and that's great this is you've got some you know you've got some tech you've got some space tech and you got some uh some interesting stuff on that level but i i what i like about it is that at its heart you've got human characters and how they their baggage and how they react to each other actually if you go up the chain is going to affect the future of the galaxy. And that's pretty cool. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that, and that is what I set out to do is because that was one of the things I really loved about the Vorkosing and saga and also about stuff like, um, I really love Timothy Zahn's Thrawn trilogy. Um, I like people who are recognizable as people. The expanse does this really well too. Um, yeah. you know, people who are recognizable as people and, I've read some sci-fi that is like we're you know like set so far in the future and it's post singularity and, and people aren't even human anymore right like and and that's one type of thing but it's not something that it, that speaks to me. Uh, I wanted characters who have the same uh, you know I I think you go f- you know four hundred years in the future and people are still people and they have the same fears and hopes and dreams and attachments and conflicts. That we have even today, you know, whether it be family or coworkers, um, you know, they're dealing with essentially very similar problems to, you know, ones that would be instantly recognizable to anybody who picks up this book. Uh, and so that's that was what I was shooting for was to make people who felt very human and are, you know, dealing with problems that are not totally alien to the kind of stuff that we all all have to deal with every day. Yeah, uh, no, I think uh, I think you did that, and it's a fun it's a fun book. I think people, especially, I do think you live up to your. Um, well, how should I put this? I can tell your love of the Four Kozigan books when I read it. Like I can recognize that, and I love those books too, and they're fun. And I I had that same feeling of I wish there were more books like this where there are very interesting human characters, but they get but their problems are played out over this galactic spectacle which is fun yeah um, i mean it's it's fun and i hope i hope people find it fun and even funny at parts like, oh yeah I think sure there's you know attempts to, to put in humor the the tone that i feel like i kind of shoot for and i don't know if this will be off-putting to some people or or not but the the tone is kind of like that marvel movie sort of tone where it's like there are serious moments of drama but there's also a lot of levity yeah and there's action and, and stuff like that but like it's very very digestible yeah well so you've got you you definitely have characters with senses of humor and it comes out in different ways which is which is fun that uh that yeah it's definitely not a super serious like no 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 no. this is science fiction we must be serious it's not like that either so yeah well it's uh i guess available where books are sold (laughs) yeah that hopefully i mean you can certainly find it on amazon barnes and noble uh ibooks uh, all those places you can check your local bookstore. If they don't have it, they'll probably order it for you. No audiobook um, yet, but we can hope, right? That, that, that there might be down the road. It's unclear yeah, right now. Is that right? Un- unclear. I don't, I don't know. Don't really have anything to announce about that, but I'm, I'm hopeful that at some point that will be something that people can enjoy. Yeah. Well, that would be good. That would be good. Yeah. Because some people yeah. want audiobooks. And that's, yeah. Some people do want audiobooks. Yeah. But the deal, the deal you made with a publisher was not an audiobook publishing deal. It was a print and ebook deal. So any, anything that would happen would happen at some other time. So we'll see. I hope so, though. That would be nice. Yeah. Worse, worse that comes to worse, the incomparable will read your book, Dan. <laughs> people will pay for that, well, right? They'll totally pay for that. Everybody take a page. Yep. Oh, that, now there's an idea. No, that seems like a really bad idea. It seems like no one would have a good time with that, including especially the listeners. (laughs) 
Anything we didn't cover that you would like to cover in this special all day um, episode? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot of pressure. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything. Uh, I mean, I guess the short answer would be, you know, I, I feel like we have we have a great audience at The Incomparable. And uh, I think that's been a huge help to me in over this time. Like people have been really very supportive uh, and I've gotten a ton of tweets about people buying the book, which is just incredibly heartwarming for me um, on, on something that I've worked for so long and, and really strove for for so long. And I, I really appreciate everybody who bought the book. Uh, I really appreciate everybody who's going to buy the book, as you all are, I'm sure. Um, but I also, you know, kind of want to say like, hey, I'm, you know, I started this out as like, I think all writers pretty much. I started out as a fan uh, and you know, to those of you who are sitting out there listening, who maybe thought like, I'd like to write a book someday. I guess I just want to tell you that you can do this. Like it's not, I, I have showed you that, that it is an achievable goal. Uh, It's going to be hard. It's going to take a ton of work. Um, but if you feel like that's something you want to do, then you can absolutely do it. Uh, and you know, feel free to reach out to me. I, I, don't certainly this, I'm embarking upon a new section of my own life here. So I don't know that I will have all the answers or even any of the answers, but I, I will try, you know, I try to sort of pay that forward as people have in, in the past paid it forward for me, uh, to try and help out and, you know, see if people can achieve that. So know that you can do this. And if you need help or advice, feel free to, to hit me up Twitter on my website, what have you. Um, but especially you incomparable fans, cause I'm, I'm, I'm one of you guys. You know, Dan, you're making me want to go back to my novel rewrite. It's sitting you right should. here. I need to you get should. back to that. I usually do yeah, that on I've Friday. Read, I've read several of your books. Yeah. Uh, and and I feel like there's, there's some really good stories there that I would love to see shared with more Would, people. Wouldn't that so, be nice one day? It would be nice. And it's doable, Jason. I, it can be done. It, I've it seen it. It can be done. And you know an agent. You know a guy. So, I do. I do. I know a few guys. Well, I'll get on that. I, I I have to say quitting my job and going out on my own or, or, or leaving my job. I quit it and I didn't go out on my own because they kept me and then I left my job. But uh, <laughs> that, that threw, threw a wrench into all of my kind of like separation between uh, different projects. And the, uh, that, yeah. the writing, the rewrites have struggled because of that. Like I always have that like I could write another Six Colors post and I need, I need to block off time and say, no, at this time, write your novel dummy yeah it's an it's an it's an investment and and honestly you know you and i both left at the same time yep and that was helpful for me because it really gave me an impetus to be like (laughs) i'm gonna get this done focused focuses the mind a little yeah so i I really yeah i really had to kick my own butt at that point be like you know what you've always wanted to do this and you're never gonna have a better opportunity yeah well and here you are so they can't take they can't take this away from you published author dan warren (laughs) Recall the books. They run around, Recall run around the books. to all the bookstores. Put them in the wood chipper. The it's done. No, not the wood chipper. Shred the books. All right. Well, thank you, Dan. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this All Dan episode of The Incomparable. The Caledonian Gambit by Dan Morin is a published book from Talos Press that you can go buy and you should buy it. And uh, buy two copies. Buy five copies. <laughs> Give them to your friends or just leave them on a shelf somewhere and hug them occasionally. Whatever. <laughs> More, I'm sure you'll hear more from Dan in the future in that you listen so. to a podcast Dan is on. Yeah. So, of course, you will. <laughs> and thanks for listening to The Incomparable. Goodbye. Goodbye.